the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. We're really excited uh, to bring on the show <laughs> Andrew Clayman. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on, man. We're, we're so glad you're in town. It's and, a pleasure. Uh, you know, we're uh, we were talking a little bit about just the media in general, and I know you've done some great stuff on this. Let me start you here with uh, with ESPN, though. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I, we're big sports fans. Uh, you know, ESPN. It's part of my childhood. It's been part of my entire life. Watching. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm basically obsessed with sports. I just can't take the constant political correctness that comes out of this in a realm where I don't want it. Right. I want to escape. I mean, how hard is it to tell me the score <laughs> and what the guy, you know, the, the, inter, the sports interview is, it's a team sport, you know, I take it one day at a time. <laughs> it's the same interview every time. <laughs> how hard is it to stick to that script and not tell me, you know, the title line is the greatest thing ever. It's a, it's, yeah. you know, oh, I actually canceled my subscription to Sports Illustrated because I was so tired of them telling me that God didn't care who won the Super Bowl. You know, it's like, uh, like how do yeah. they know? Maybe God has money on the Super Bowl. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and when did Sports Illustrated become? you know the center of theology in America uh, it is amazing because you really see it all the time I and, mean, and what was a, a great example of that title nine mm -hmm. and its resulting nonsense because uh, they bent over backward to in this uh, John McEnroe scandal in the last couple of weeks mm -hmm. to make it seem as though he said something horrifically terrible and shocking to everybody that a woman, the, the highest ranked woman in the world, would only be 700th on the men's tour. I mean, I'm not even sure she'd be 700th. She says the same thing. She yeah, said she about did. a few years ago, she said the exact same thing. <laughs> that she would never be able to beat Andy. But it, you know what? It's, it's just plain to see. It's not even a controversy. But mm -hmm. now they make it like he's supposed to. It's like a show trial, a Stalin show trial. He's supposed to show up and apologize. It's, it's really, really strange because the whole point of women's tennis, the reason women's tennis is one of the only popular female sports is because it's different than men's tennis. Mm -hmm. There's not as much power. It's more strategy. It's right. a little slower. You can longer watch rallies. It, longer rallies. Yeah. That's what makes it so interesting. Yeah. And the short skirts. You know, uh, yeah, so. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I do actually hurt. find it for both of those reasons preferable to watch because, yeah. you know, Immense tennis winds up being guys who hit the ball 145 miles an hour on serves, and there's just not a lot happening. Where, yeah. you know, women's tennis, there's back and forth. It's actually a really interesting uh, part of the sport, though it is the same sport. Let's be honest. They put them all together. It is the same sport. They play it differently. But the bottom line is, if Serena played in men's tennis, I don't think she would be 700th. I think she probably would lose to the 700th best player in the, in the world. It's very, very, very possible. That, that power, that power just overwhelms everything. It's one yeah. of the reasons that men's tennis can get very boring. Yeah, it really yeah. can. Um, so uh, we were talking a little about this uh, Caitlyn Jenner thing as it relates to ESPN. They okay. did a 30 for 30 podcast. And the 30 for 30 podcast was about the Dan and Dave ad campaign that they ran in the 90s. I don't know if you remember this, but it was a big deal at the time. These two competing decathletes, and they ran the ads constantly. Okay. So it's an interesting story. If you want to go back and listen to it at some point, it's worth it. However, they started with this disclaimer at the beginning of it because we're talking to decathlon. Of course, Bruce Jenner is going to come up. This is the actual disclaimer they get at the beginning of this podcast. Listen. It's the story of a 1992 Reebok ad campaign 25 years ago this summer, unlike anything anyone had seen before. Reebok spent some $25 million on the campaign, featuring two top decathletes, a sum equal to their entire previous year's marketing budget. 
those who remember the story remember it as a bust, but there are many more twists and turns along the way for Reebok, the two athletes, and the sport of track and field. One note, this episode features references to legendary decathlete Caitlyn Jenner. Jenner prefers to be referred to as Bruce in regards to her decathlon career. And a heads up, this episode includes mature language. And now, the trials of Dan and Dave. Yeah, the there, language there was no legendary yeah. decathlete named Caitlyn Jenner. Uh, so that's how politically correct they get. They're trying to rewrite history, even though Caitlyn herself prefers to be referred to as Bruce when she was a he. I mean, I, it's, it's impossible. Like They actually want live in to this deny world? history and say the person... <laughs> They want to see a woman won the men's decathlon in 1976. Well, you're being kind when you say they want to deny history. They want to deny all reality. I mean, yeah. <laughs> all reality is going to bend to their will. I mean, this is what political correctness is. Political correctness is the theory that if you lie, reality will shape itself mm. around your lie. And, what, and, you know, to be honest with you, it really is kind of a problem because when they start to say, when the Olympic Committee starts to say that a transgender male can compete against females, these women who spend their lives training and working to win suddenly are really up against the man. Yeah, and less, I think that be, might be the breaking point for this bull yeah. crap. I, I, <laughs> I think when, when, they, when, when uh, men start saying, I identify as woman, and they get into women's sports and they start beating these women, the women are going to get pissed and they're going to rise up and maybe put a stop to it. And maybe it's only women who can put a stop to this. Because uh, they, they have their own... Beef. Their own yeah. special interest group yeah. that's pretty powerful. It is amazing. So let's, let's bring this to the media more generally because uh, there's, there's the term fake news. You have a great uh, uh, Prager University video yeah. uh, about fake news. And it's interesting the way that term has kind of developed in a really short amount of time. I mean, it came out of initially seemingly to describe sort of like internet hoaxes. It had nothing to do with politics at all, kind of initially when people started saying fake news. And then it was kind of tied, the left tried to use it to, to blame Trump's victory on people fooling them on Facebook, uh, which was a ridiculous way to do it. You kind of broaden it, and, and because it, political correctness is not just a thing that you can apply to a Caitlyn Jenner story or to uh, you know, a Serena Williams story. It's just, it really is the media as a whole um, looking at these stories from a completely different perspective from the truth, they're biased. That's right. And that, that really fuels all their coverage. Well, the bias is so bad that all the news is essentially fake. And, you know, they, this is, the delight about this is fake news was kind of a term, as you say, that the left was throwing at places like Breitbart, the Trump right. places. Yeah. And it kind of was like a cigar that blew up in their faces. They were puffing <laughs> away really and suddenly, is. boom, yeah. you know. And I think the problem is, look, for 16 years during the George W. Bush administration and during the Obama administration, that small swath of America that fits between New York and L.A., you know, like yeah. all of it, you <laughs> yeah, know, a was, bit was just consistently derided and disrespected. The Tea Party was absolutely dismissed. They were called names. They're perfectly peaceful and honorable protests against the government spending were depicted as racist. Mm -hmm. And and this went on and on. And, and Barack Obama went for eight years. He corrupted the Justice Department. He corrupted the IRS. He had scandal after scandal that they never covered. And then at the end, there's a wonderful clip you can find of every single network going, the remarkable thing about Obama is that he was scandal free. Yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah, he's scandal. I couldn't see the scandal. You know, I had my hands <laughs> over my face. So, so 
this basically has been saying to most of America that your opinions are hateful. There's our opinions, our progressive, beautiful, mm -hmm. you know, futuristic opinions, and then there's your backlash against our brilliant tomorrow, and you're hateful. And this went on and on and on, and then finally Trump got elected, and the press went nuts. And so now they've gotten so excited trying to get him that it really is fake news. The Russia collusion story mm -hmm. is fake news. They're just lying all the time. Mm -hmm. Jim Acosta just, I now call it the CNN two-step. The first step is you put your foot in your mouth, and the second step is you shoot yourself in the foot, you know, and blow your head off, you know. And Jim Acosta today, was, Trump was in Poland, and he said, pointed out that they keep saying that seven, all 17 intelligence agencies signed off on this Russia interference thing. And it's just not true. And the New York Times and AP retracted it. Yeah, last week, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And Donald Trump pointed this out. And Jim Acosta says, well, there's fake news. Mm. You know, where did he get that number that it was only three agencies? Well, he got it from the New York Times. Yeah. Associated <laughs> Press. So they just keep blowing themselves up wow. because they hate him so much. And the thing is, you know, this thing with Trump and his mean tweets against the press, this is not a bug, it's a feature. I mean, this is one of the reasons people sent Donald Trump to Washington, D.C., was to just kick back against these people that they have no voice against. They're too powerful. Their voices are too broad, and they just want to strike back. I think if Republicans in general could be just a tad more competent, yeah. there, there's a real opportunity here in that Trump is able, unlike anybody ever, to completely derail the media coverage by 100, in 140 characters. Right. So he can tweet out a, 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 a picture, and you might say, is this the right thing for the president to be doing? Uh, I, I, those criticisms, I think, are legitimate. However, it distracts the media so much, you could pass anything in Congress. You could pass, you could pass a flat tax of 1% if, they, if he tweeted at the right moment. Like, I really, <laughs> they should start using this as a strategy <laughs> to just throw people off the line of policy. I, I, I don't know if that's their goal, but man, it would be great if it was. Well, it, it is. I agree with you that, it, that it's disturbing to watch the presidency kind of devolve to this, into this mud fight. But at the same time, when you have Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough week after week calling this man a goon, a thug, mentally ill, <laughs> an ass, they call them all those things. And finally, he says, you know, shut up. And then they go, what? You know, yeah, <laughs> like, like presidential is a word that now the news media use, uses to mean you can't strike back at us. And I thought it was a perfectly legitimate hit. They, they've been lying about him for six months. Um, there, was a, uh, there was another example of this type of behavior with uh, Trump, who's doing this big kind of uh, global tour right now and the G20 and all of this. He talked about North Korea and China and how the trade um, uh, levels had gone up by 40% in the first quarter. I think his, his, his exact phrasing was almost 40%. Right. He gets this fact-checked by, I think it was the New York Times, who in the story show that the trade had increased by 37.4%. And he said almost 40%, and they say in the story, we don't know where he got this 40% number. Wow. Wow, I, I haven't mean, seen that. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, because I, I think there is a there are two ways to go in this. I think you can be um, like the left is. They just believe everything they say, and uh, they never question any of anything the media you know actually says. And I think there are some on the right that just take everything that the media says and just throw it out. Right. And while you say, you know, uh, everything in the media is fake news, it's really what you're saying is the perspective. That's is, right. It's not the facts. And, right. and one of the things that's so disturbing is the New York Times has wonderful reporters on it. Yeah. Uh, CBS has some good reporters. A lot of these places have good reporters. But they're being put to use serving uh, what is essentially propaganda. The New York Times has now become 
a college sophomore left-wing <laughs> paper. I mean, it is so bad, it is so hysterical, so shrill, that you read it and you think like, yeah, they're sending this excellent reporter out into the field, but then when it gets to the editorial level, they're using his material uh, in, a, in a very uh, very skewed, ridiculous way, and I can't blame people for dismissing them, even though I agree there's, there's a hazard to dismissing mm -hmm. the facts. But it's an interesting thing. In, in a way, it's understandable, too. I mean, here is a group of people that live around people uh, who are all the exact same as them. They're all far to the left. They were all went through the same sort of systems. They all believe the exact same things. Then they are in control of the, of the media. They say all the things they want to say, and they still lose. And I think some of these, especially some of these extreme examples, the Acosta one seems to be a good one from today, might be just a part of them. They can't believe the world they live in. And they're becoming activists even more than they were previously because it's, they think the whole world is slipping away. Yeah. Uh, and in some ways it is. Um, I don't know what it's slipping away to, but it's something else. And it, it's, a, it's not excusable, but do you think that that could be potentially the formulation that's going on with well, them? Well, I, th I think they truly don't know what they don't know. I mean, they are so, <laughs> they're, not only are they in their bubble, but they can't even see beyond, they can't even see the worth of getting out of their bubble. And you know, they have been saying this for years. Every time they're challenged on this, they say, well, you know, I may be a Democrat, and every single person around me may be a Democrat, but a Democrat can be fair. And of course, that's technically true, but a Democrat can be fair when a Republican is standing next to him. Same is true of a Republican, by the way. It's not, it's not that, it's just psychologically, when you're surrounded by people who agree with you, you become biased and you become kind of radicalized yeah. because everybody's confirming everything that you say. And it's just, it happens to everybody. And I think that it is a problem in the whole country now that we're so, uh, it, we're in such niches and cut off from one another that we don't really, just, you know, it's so funny. When I meet leftists and we talk face to face and I don't call them names and I don't attack their heroes and all this stuff, we can have very good conversations. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about principle and we say, well, yeah, I can agree with you there and I disagree with you here and here's why. But you can't do that when all you ever see is the news from your side. And I think the right has an advantage here because we don't own ABC, CBS, and NBC. They do. We don't own the New York Times, which sets the budget, you know, of most of the small newspapers sure. throughout the country. Mm -hmm. So, and we don't own Hollywood. We don't, their movies, the movies reflect their values, not ours. So we see what they think. We know what they think, and we can reason against it and argue with it in our minds. They never hear what we think. When I talk mm -hmm. to liberals, the first thing I say is, you don't know what I think. You have no idea what my first principles are or what, you know, I know what you think, but you don't know. And it turns out, they agree with me by the end of it. We didn't know. We didn't know what you were going to say uh, because they, they make us into cliches. They make us into, uh, you know, uh, jokes, basically. Yeah, that's, that's, it's an mm. amazing, and I think the problem you're talking about does get worse when you talk about social media. You can really get to that point on Facebook where you never see you, the other side, uh, unless it's characterized as like, do you believe what this leftist said or do you believe what this crazy Nazi conservative said? You will never leave that bubble. And I feel like that's a, like an annoying sort of thing to say, like, oh, we're all so polarized and we're all in our own bubbles. But it's really true. Yeah. I mean, I, I, people that I t deal with on a regular basis who I really consider to be smart people who, you know, they're, we're not talking about, you know, Cletus from The Simpsons here. We're talking about people who really like, you know, I think are really smart and agree with the world. And they don't, they don't even investigate the other side. And I think what makes you strong and principled on the right is understanding what the left wants to do. Right. If you don't understand that bigger picture, you can't 
possibly get to a real principled position. You know, I, I tell this story, but it's absolutely true that, you know, they give you those news apps you get on iPad and all this, yeah. and they filter your news according to what you like. And I was reading it one day, and finally it was only turning up articles written by me. <laughs> I thought, I'm now literally talking to myself, you know? And, they, and it would be nice if they would invent an app that would, co you know, uh, Put in stories that disagree with you, that say, well, here's the other side of that. You know, I go to places like realclearpolitics.com, yeah. which give you the best op-eds from both sides and all that stuff. But it's hard to do, and you got to work at it, and you have to get over your anger when you read an opinion that you don't like, and you have to kind of calm down and see where the guy's coming from. It's, yeah. it's, it's work. Speaking of things you've written, um, tell us about your uh, latest book, The the Great Good Thing. Yeah, my, it's a memoir of my conversion from... I, I don't... I. I hate to call it secular Judaism because there's no such thing really, but I was a <laughs> secular Jew. I was raised a Jew. I became a complete agnostic for most of my life. I mean, I was close to uh, 50 when I was baptized. Mm -hmm. So I, it was really, uh, really a long, yeah, it was a really long journey. Well, you know, you live in, in a, an atmosphere. It's like, it's like the fish in the sea. They don't know they're in the sea because mm -hmm. it's everything around them. And that was where I was. I worked in LA. I worked in the movie business. I, I was a novelist. I worked in New York. I lived in London. Everyone around me had the same opinion, that if you believed in God, if you believed in God, you were kind of offbeat. If you believed in Christ, you were out of your mind. And mm -hmm. you, were, you were kind of mm -hmm. an idiot, you know. That's, that was yeah. basically the idea. And so it took a long time of just thinking, reasoning. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't looking for anything. I was just kind of trying to reason out the truth according to all the things I'd read and all the philosophy and literature and everything. And it just kept coming back to this experience. And, of course, th through that, my, my own life, I had a, I've lived two lives. It's a very, it's very weird. I mean, uh, people who know me now are, get sick and tired of how joyful and upbeat I am. But until I was 28, I was out of my mind. Mm. I was like a nut, you know, and like I really cracked up at that point. And there's a dividing line. Mm. And it was only when I, because I was so unhappy, I wouldn't turn to God because it felt like a crutch. And so I thought, like, that would be intellectually dishonest. So I actually had to get happy first. And then I started to think clearly about it. It's actually, I, I have to say, when I wrote it down, one of the reasons I wrote it down was to make sure I hadn't made any mistakes. But it turned out to be a really good story. Uh, I, I didn't realize my life was actually as good a story as it was. <laughs> as I was writing, I was going, hey, this is pretty good. You know? so, so it actually, it's actually kind of an interesting journey. What was, the, what was the turning point for you in your faith? Well, you know what? Some, some Christians actually get angry about this uh, with me because I didn't have like a road to Damascus moment. There was mm -hmm. nothing like this beam of light or anything like that. But, but two basic things happened. One was I slowly began to realize that nothing I believed made sense without God. None of the morality, I believe, made sense without God. I, I had grown up surrounded by this idea of relativism, that mm -hmm. you have your morality, I have my morality. And mm -hmm. I slowly realized that just does not make sense. That is not the world as I see it. You know, there are certain things you could do that would be wrong if every single person on earth said it was right. And I thought, like, you can't have that opinion without believing in God. And so I sort of stumbled into prayer. And the prayer changed my life so much that I eventually went to God and said, well, how do I thank you? You know, I'm like, you're God, I'm a schmo. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do I do for you? Mm -hmm. And it, I won't say it was a voice, like an actual voice, but it was as clear as day, this idea, now you should be baptized. 
And my reaction was, are you kidding me? You know, like what, the, I, you know, I'm working in Hollywood. They'll, they'll, cru they'll crucify me, you know, <laughs> my you, you know, like, and, and you know, my, my family will be upset and my father will disown me and all this stuff. So it, it was a very mm. difficult moment. And I had to go over my entire life and think like, well, why, why that, why me, you know? And that's kind of the story I tell mm. in the book, was that kind of five months of, of just struggling with this idea that seemed to have come out of, literally out of the sky. It's, there's some real value in that type of introspective thinking, too. I mean, you know, Glenn always uses the quote from Thomas Jefferson, question even the very existence of God. Um, mm -hmm. And, and you know, there's more to it than that. I, I won't bore the audience with the entire quote, because if they listen to this network, they've heard it 500 <laughs> million times. Uh, but the point is, though, that is a tough thing to question. If you grow up in a certain faith, if you, if you grow up um, not believing in God at all, to consider those things, I think, takes real introspection. And that can be applied to every aspect of life. I mean, politics is easy once you've kind of gone through that journey, isn't it? Yes, I, I think that's right. And, I, you know, the funny thing is... Getting baptized brought me so much peace and so much joy and really elevated my life in so many ways that one of my complaints that I sometimes would take to God is, why did you take so long? Why did you let me wander around like an idiot for 50 years? You know, <laughs> like, like, it's not, not that long. A, you know, it's not that hard an idea to get. And one of the reasons I think that had to happen to me was I wanted to I had to see all the bad arguments. I had to live out all the bad arguments. And one of the reasons that's an advantage is many people who are born into the faith and stay in the faith don't understand why people don't just see it. And mm -hmm. they'll say, but don't you see it's right here in the Bible? The guy says, well, I don't believe in the Bible. That's yeah. not an actual argument. Right. You know? <laughs> and, and so to have built my faith up from the ground up without the Bible, really, to have to get to the Bible actually makes it very strong. So when I hear certain arguments, I can think like, yeah, I've been there. I, I, I believed that for a while. Yeah. And then that fell apart on this, you know, that hit this rock. And it actually has been very useful that way. Oh, that's great. That's um, great. Andrew Clavin, I mean, we're really happy to have you here. It's and, a thrill. Uh, yeah. It was great. Uh, Daily Wire, uh, uh, the po podcast, you can get there, right? Yep. Um, and I mean, that's a, you know, you're talking about a great, uh, great place to show up. You got you, you got Ben Shapiro, all the, the, you know, they cover every bit of news as well. Uh, it's a great place to go. And uh, you can get it. It's every day, right? Monday through Friday? Monday through Thursday. Monday through Thursday. Yeah. Okay. And Thursday. the name of the book, of course, The Great Good Thing, Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. So. Awesome. Pick that get up it. too. Andrew thanks Clayton, very much. Thanks so much for coming on.